the three P's, you know, it's not just rinse and recycle and repeat, it's uh, and reduce and reuse, it's people and profit and planet. And is it good for the planet? Is it good for my pocketbook? Um, and is it good for the people that are in the community? Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and on the show today, how Brandy Townsend took a background in architecture and found new ways to think about building and deconstructing that are more environmentally sustainable. We drive by and walk by buildings every day. We see the exterior, the brick, the windows, the roofing, but we normally do not think about how these buildings were constructed. We've all seen buildings that are being torn down with the large dumpsters overflowing outside. And if you reside in Atlanta, Georgia, you can all remember the viral video of the Georgia Dome being imploded by dynamite. Buildings, that they provide us a lot. Shelter, community, and, and safety. But not all buildings are built the same. And this is something that I've learned over time. It is important for us to understand what buildings are constructed of, and how we can better deconstruct buildings once they are no longer useful. Often in the construction and demolition world, there's a conflict between demolition and deconstruction. Or should we implode this building with dynamite, or should we deconstruct it and reuse the internal elements? The C&D industry as a whole is the largest contributor to greenhouse gases in our world today. So for us, we have to find better, more sustainable ways to construct and deconstruct. For us, the Georgia Dome is a great study of how large buildings can tie deconstruction and demolition together. Like I said, most people watched the video of the implosion and figured all the internal elements were destroyed. However, that was not the case at all. The project removed universal waste streams, stripped the interior down to bare concrete walls and floors, and recycled the lower bowl of seating all before the implosion occurred. Sometimes the answer is not one or the other, but a combination of the two, like we see in the case study of the Georgia Dome. Brandy Townsend grew up on a dairy farm in Western New York and knew from a young age the importance of environmental sustainability. She went to SCAD, the Savannah College of Art and Design, and received a master's degree in architecture. Fueled by a desire to build and create, it led her into a variety of industries but all of these industries all went back to her original passion for sustainability. She worked in hospitality through the Intercontinental Hotels Group, Marriott, and Rubicon Global, working on their sustainability efforts. She worked in government with the City of Atlanta on sustainability, and she tapped into her inner entrepreneurial spirit and, and created multiple businesses that focused on recycling and waste removal. Now she finds herself in another industry, consulting, as a consultant, she has been able to spread her expertise and experience in a variety of industries. Brandy, like a lot of people, thought her life was going to go in a singular direction, but as she has learned, life never goes in one direction. 
She has been able to impact so many industries, bridging the gap between sustainability and architecture. Through her studies at SCAD, she learned the basis of building, but over time, she has learned about the importance of green building, constructing and deconstructing buildings with the environment in mind. Brandy's story involves a lot of stops, but her upbringing back in Western New York, right outside of Buffalo, molded her into who she is today. I originally come from uh, Western New York, born in Buffalo, raised on a dairy farm uh, south of there in Chautauqua, New York. And I think that's where I got my environmental sustainability bug inside of me um, that has sort of led me through my journey um, (laughs) through not only growing up on a farm, but then going to school for architecture and then where I'm at today at in consulting for waste and recycling, not architecture. <laughs> you touched on that, that growing up in Western New York, south of Buffalo, that you were, that you lived on a dairy farm. And that's kind of how you got into sustainability and really opened up your mind. So could you expand on that a little bit? What was it about the dairy farm that made you think more of sustainability? I think it was um, innately embedded in me, you know, whether uh, it's, it's the natural process that I got to see as a child where, you know, you cleaned out the, you know, the barn and spread the manure on the fields to create fertilizer. And, you know, you, you buried your cows and your horses out back and they, you know, created fertilizer as well. And then, you know, if you um, did certain things and rotated crops and um, truly the essence of loving your animals, we named every single one of our animals. And there was a, uh, our co-op upstate farms had approached our small head of cattle, 40, 40 milking cows, um, probably about 75 altogether with calves and heifers and everything. But um, they said, how do you do it? How's your butter fat so high? Because you get tested, your milk gets tested every month. And why, why are your, your cows are so clean? And my mom vacuumed the barn, but it was that love. And if you have the love of, of nature and the earth, then you, you then carry it through the rest of, you know, your lifetime and, really where I'm at today is knowing that if I love the earth and I love what I do and, and do it out of that, that perspective, then, you know, I work better. I, my kids grow up just the same way I did. And, and it's sort of, it's cyclical and that love is cyclical that, which I think has shown through the different jobs I've had through the ages and um, where it, where it brings me to today, actually. So looking looking more in your past, you, you grew up in Western New York, and then you actually go to school at SCAD, um, and and you you have a, you get your master's in architecture, and you've used that um, to now create a career in sustainability and to use that knowledge of architecture to really you know flip people's mindsets a lot in in terms of building and deconstructing. So. Can you talk a little bit about your time at SCAD and how that molded you into who you are today? Yeah, so uh, I 
was very adamant about getting away from the cold and snow. And I didn't want to go to college where I had to shovel snow because <laughs> all my classmates had said, you know, I don't go to class when I'm there's three feet of snow outside. And I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound pleasant. So SCAD um, has a five-year master's program and um, it is a fantastic course. Um, and it also laid a foundation for me of just how things are put together. Um, you know, I was a very hands-on person in, in my childhood growing up on a farm, you know, every summer, you're, every day you're working hard. And then to translate that into how buildings are built, how they get put together, really started to uh, resonate in my mind of what materials are these things, you know, these buildings being made of. Um, it was the beginning of the United States Green Building Council. Uh, so as I went to SCAD, the lead examination process and that checklist was definitely a part of the conversation in everyday architecture classes where you're saying, you know, what materials are more natural, better for the environment? What are not so good? How do we recycle them? How do we reuse them? Um, and the the kit of parts in which was one of my fundamental architecture classes is everything is made up of a kit of parts and you put them together uh, to create a building or a product. And then, you know, in this mindset of sustainability, it should really be taken apart back into those kit of parts because every single piece has a value on itself. And um, that's, that's really what I've learned through the years is that the building, the real estate, the property just doesn't have a value everything else has a value within it too. You know, the furniture, the nails, the gypsum board, the, the metal roof, you know, the cladding, however it's, it's built. And, and that should be maintained through and through the life of a building. I think that's where um, the sustainability bug sort of then translated into um, number one, an uh, intern position, building Hilton Head High School of seeing how everything was put together. Um, and apprenticing with an electrician really makes you understand and be part of the everyday trade that puts these kit of parts together, where the concrete trucks are coming from, where the all of the supplies are coming from, what that looks like, and how logistically coordinated these buildings are and the whole process has a value. So you took your education from SCAD, um, then you, you worked an internship, then you were an apprentice um, with an electrician. So after that, what did you get into and kind of how did your career unfold from then until now? Yeah, so it's, you know, architecture was that foundation for me. Um, 
unfortunately, and maybe fortunately, I'd have to say there's always a silver lining. Um, I'm a pretty positive person. So in 2008, I was in Atlanta. Um, I came from Savannah and then wanted to put my degree to work in Atlanta. Um, And I started building hotels for Cooper Carey Architects. Um, And that's where the specifications and how we put our drawings and our specs, technical specs together for what a building looked like um, really resonated with me to say there needs to be a greener, more sustainable mindset here. We can't just um, continue on this status quo of, you know, steel, wood, gypsum, paint, you know, and screw it all together and make it look pretty. We have to be thoughtful about every single piece of material that we're putting together. Um, And I was building hotels at the time and um, started to really press on Cooper Carey to say, um, you know, how how can we be green as a a, as a firm? And uh, the recession hit. So, you know, in 08, um, 200 of us got laid off. And I was still in Atlanta from a deposit bill state. New York state um, has a deposit bill and they get five, 10 cents for their aluminum cans. And so my entrepreneurial spirit of uh, my father's farmer and me came out in the Atlanta market and I started a recycling company for um, apartment buildings because at that time, um, as I, as the recession hit the um, there was an ordinance for recycling in Atlanta. So I started remix recycling with my partner, Ashley, and we provided bins uh, to multifamily apartment complexes in the Metro area for recycling so that they could divert and be compliant and really start to understand the value of recycling, how much they could divert, um, how much they could pay for one service versus paying for another service that doesn't do anything but put stuff into a hole. And that's really where uh, the the value of recycling um, was just exploited to me in Atlanta. We have in Atlanta, Georgia, Strategic Materials is the largest glass recycler in America. And we had it right at our back doors. And they were importing glass, not exporting it as much as they should, you know, they should be because we just didn't have the volume. And so that really created the the value proposition for recyclables in, in my mind. Um, and how I how do how do how do I relay that as me going down my career path, how does that turn into dollars and cents for myself as well as um, dollars and cents for other people? So um, I started, uh, gosh, after I sold Remix Recycling, I worked for um, Intercontinental Hotel Group, which uh, along the hospitality lines um, was the corporate sustainability structure and really looking at larger companies. Um, you have your grassroots foundational folks who are doing their part. And then you have another, um, 
group of folks, corporate entities that are really trying to do their part. And in our Continental Hotel Group, IHG, um, had very strategic goals um, within sustainability, wastewater, building, air, um, as well as communal stuff, uh, shelter in a storm, how do we give back to our communities? And so those were some pillars that was really a corporate rigor. Um, Cooper Carey was a very good corporate structure of architecture. Um, and IHG was a very uh, great example of corporate sustainability being implemented at their uh, company-owned and franchised hotel chains um, down to, you know, Holiday and Expresses were really saying, how much water am I using? How much waste am I diverting? Am I recycling? How do I recycle? Do I need a baler? Um, why? How much is my trash versus recycling? And that the value proposition on, on doing good and making sustainable, conscious decisions, but also maintaining their budget was that... Um, the, the guardrails that was in IHG that was a great uh, guideline and, and playbook for other things where I then moved on to Rubicon Global, um, who is primarily a broker, a waste consulting broker. Um, and I worked with Marriott Hotels to do something very similar on waste aversion and making people aware that waste needs to go in the right place. Um, it's just not a whole bunch of stuff in a bag, you can pick it out and you can find a place for it. Is it food waste? You know, does it need to be composted? Is it something that we can totally refuse and not even use that type of material? You know, styrofoam, plastic bags, those types of ideas, um, straws, or or is there stirrers? Stirrers are a big thing for hotels. How do, how do we make the right choice? Is it bamboo? Is it wood? Is it plastic? Hopefully it's, you know, the best choice for not only the environment and their pocketbooks, but also the people that they serve too. Um, and that's where I worked at Rubicon to do those things um, with Marriott and property, properties in particular, uh, property development. And uh, also working at a smaller firm, MPAS Environmental, which did did a lot of the same, um, but got us into, got me into the manufacturing side of the world. Uh, I love hotels and that outward facing public uh, space, but the manufacturers of the world uh, is a very unique space and a very untapped division and industry that really needs just guidance on how they are sustainable as well. You know, most of them, mid-sized manufacturers are not publicly traded. Um, so they don't have the pressures. So they have a little bit more choice. And um, I began working with, uh, you know, major manufacturers in carpet because they're right north of Atlanta. Um, and then also other, you know, industries, whether it's beverage companies, in, in Bev, 
Anheuser-Busch is right here, um, right south of Dalton. Uh, I live in Rome, Georgia. So there's a lot of um, carpet and textiles here, metal in particular. Um, we've got some really great mills. Um, Gerdau Metal is a metal mill here. The paper industry, Georgia Pacific um, Cardboard is another huge industry in Atlanta and Georgia itself because of our tree population and um, because of our pulp and paper mills. Uh, that's not that's why I didn't stay in Savannah because it smelled too much of sulfur because Georgia Pacific is just a little too smelly for me. <laughs> but that's the space I'm in now with um, Koshin Global and GBB. GBB, um, Gershman Brickner and Branton is out of uh, Virginia. And I consult for them. Uh, and we work with municipalities. Um, we work with uh, other countries, Guam, and um, different manufacturers, controlled products in the recreational group. Uh, all are just yearning and looking for someone to help guide them through ESG and sustainable goals and really taking accountability for their materials. So that's where I'm at now. The age old saying is it's a small world. And that's definitely true for, for me and you, Brandy. I, I was introduced to you through a mutual of a mutual connection and, through talking with you, it's so interesting because our um, our lives were almost right there together, but we never met each other. With Rubicon, I, I have experience with Rubicon. I had won a, a, a competition and, and met some of their leadership. Um, and then with Controlled Products and Recreational Group, I, that was my, my, my past employer. And I had done some internal consulting work where I, I looked at all the, of the internal turf companies to figure out how much turf waste are we wasting per year and in how much replacement fields are we doing? You know, how much turf can we save? What's the value of all these things? So I, I had done all the research, met with all of the people. Um, and one person, Ashley, inside the company had, had told me that she was working with this organization, Coaching Global. Again, I had no idea what it was and, and, and what you did, but what you were doing was diverting their waste, um, not to the landfill, but to, to a better use. And it, it's interesting because I didn't know who you were then, but now I, I know who you are in the connection to Rubicon, the connection through controlled and, and recreational group and with Dalton, Georgia. I mean, you worked with organizations in Dalton, Georgia. I grew up in Dalton, Georgia, um, in, in the carpet capital of the world. So it's definitely a small world. And I, I just love meeting people and, and talking to people on sustainability because it always seems like there's some kind of connection like this. It's really interesting just to sit down and, and to talk um, with someone like you, Brandy, who who has this all this um, various experience in different forms of sustainability, not just um, architecture, but with with the logistics um, behind it, and it's, it's it's interesting to to share that with people. So I guess what I would ask is, with GBB, you touched on it a little bit, but what kind of clients are you working with with GBB, and what are um, some of the projects you're currently working on? 
So we've been, um, we're over 40 years old and uh, Harvey Gershman and um, the other guys who started the business are just, have been in waste and for such a long time. And the president of our company, Steve Simmons, now, um, I ask him about, you know, this, this facility up here, this landfill down here. And he's like, well, I ran that one for a couple of years and I, I closed this one down and I renovated this one and I've consulted with these guys. And it, it truly is a two degrees of separation because it's, you know, in sustainability. And I, I feel like that's the biggest takeaway when, when someone wants to describe like sustainability, it's like, how are we sustaining ourselves and how are we really connected to one another? Because we all are. And it's, it's just interesting. We're, we're working right now um, with a a major retailer and um, they are one of the largest manufacturers of cell phones and they go through a renovation with their brick and mortar stores and they really have asked themselves the question, you know, how can we be better, whether it's with the product we sell or with the store we sell them from. And so we've teamed with them and um, have an entire process where we evaluate facilities where they can divert all of their material from their store renovations to, whether it's a metal recycler or a um, CND facility or a MRF material recovery facility to take the electronics, to take the electrical conduit, um, to take the lighting. We've even teamed with um, some of their suppliers for a mailback um, re- sort of uh Callback program with their acoustical ceiling panels and um, a lot of the metal that's coming from or the, the reuse organization Restore is nationwide. So it's a fantastic reuse outlet uh, because it is in every city. And so we can really team with them to say, hey, we have X amount of chairs, X amount of desks. We can, you know, divert that to them instead of hauling it off in a dumpster, you haul it off in a box truck and then you get points. You feel good. You feel better about it. And somebody else has another life for it, you know, and, and that's um, the same thing with Kent County. Um, We're working on a project up there, a sustainable business park where their waste to energy facility is then taking municipal solid waste and making a um, construction, uh, four by eight board out of municipal solid waste. And that is truly being circular about our economy and the waste we produce back into something very um, usable as as a construction material, as a a roofing um, application or a siding application. It's paintable. It's more durable. It's hurricane proof, you know, and because it has all of these, fantastic qualities of what we threw away, which is just mind blowing for me that we do. We're in an era, you know, where we've got the technology to take apart and test and to really show what our 
our world is made of and where we can then reuse it again. Um, we, I'm still working with controlled products to say, okay, you've got this felted back turf. Maybe we can use it in a waste to energy facility um, as BTU and heat energy and electricity, or we can take the unfelted back and backing backed material and put it into plastic lumber. And that's where we have evaluated every single product that is waste, like a, a, a byproduct of what they're manufacturing at this turf company where, you know, the pallets, they get shredded or they get reused. The cones and the cores and all of that either get, you know, recycled on the cardboard and they get a rebate for it. Um, I was telling you earlier, they're for 2022, they're in the upwards of making about $50,000 on just their waste materials alone. Um, that pays for a the landfill in itself, like they, it's that's free money. That's right. free money that I feel like people need to recognize the value, and that's where we at GBB and um, we say, you know, it's just not a solid waste plan. Like a, a landfill has, you know, construction debris that is very great for aggregate and lumber and reclaimed lumber. And then they also have metal that's great for smelting back down or chipping back up and, and shredding to make new metal into it, which is the infinite product um, and, and s- still maintains its structural integrity. So the idea of deconstruction and breaking apart these things and really saying, hmm, what is this you know, cup really made of? Is it glass? Is there plastics in it? How, how do I deconstruct it so I can reuse it again or make it into a new product or something like that is, is where I'm at, where, where me, Brandy, has a passion to put waste in the right place, not just put it in a hole and cover it up and let it be, but know the value of plastic bottles are, you know, worth a half a penny a pound. 33 plastic bottles make up a pound of plastic. You can get you can get as much as an aluminum can if you, you know, save your water bottles and recycle them. And that's where I know legislation has a long way to go. Policies have a very long way to go on holding everyone accountable for their waste. Um, but at the same time, there's still of commodity value on aluminum cans or plastic bottles and glass bottles. And there is definitely a need for them. Um, fiberglass and, and Owens Corning needs those glass bottles recycled because they will make it into new products and materials because sand and glass is, you know, silica, which is the most sustainable, recyclable material we have. Um, and it's plentiful, though, as well. You know, in the oceans, it washes up. But I was just on Jekyll Island, and I was like, you know what? I'd rather see all of the glass bottles be crushed up, and we make fiberglass out of that than, you know, take sand from our ocean. Even though it's plentiful, it's really beautiful to look at. And that's the beauty, you know? You, you see the beauty, and you recognize the value, and you know where their place is. Let's put 
those different things in the right place so that we can maintain the beauty on, you know, Jekyll Island over here, but make, you know, fiberglass in- insulation over here on the mainland. So it's a uh, um, understanding and, and showing people that there is definitely new ways of doing things and new materials and really recognizing the value of all of their materials that they're, you know, purchasing or using and, and putting buildings together with every day or products that they're making every day. Um, yeah, we, we had talked earlier about the book Cradle to Cradle and, you know, one concept is the concept of upcycling. And a lot of people, if you don't have a background in sustainability or if you don't understand, you might not see opportunities with trash or with waste. Um, but when I was working with a recreational group, I was running a small golf company called Tour Links. And what we were doing was taking two different types of turf and cutting different shapes and then gluing them together to make uh, indoor putting greens, which pretty cool concept, but there's a lot of waste involved. Just imagine all the, the cutting that's involved and um, all the turf that was wasted. So I did an audit of all this stuff and I was like, wow, this is this is not only waste, but it's a lot of value that we're leaving that we're leaving out and we're losing money on this stuff. Our cost is higher because we're not utilizing this, this other product. So with the concept of upcycling, what I did was, again, I audited it. um, I sat down, did a lot of research and created a new product that became a competitive advantage to our main product line. And that was using, it was, it was four by four, um, a a four by four square of a fringe turf that was waste and creating a chipping chipping mat. So now not only have the putting green, but now you have a chipping mat um, that gives you the full short game experience, gives us a competitive advantage over our competitors. It helps us use um, our entire product um, and we're not, we're not wasting things. So just the concept of upcycling. And again, like you're saying, looking at something, deconstructing it, figuring out what it's made of. Okay. How can we use this business in the future and business leaders need to understand that because there's so much value in what you throw away and what you waste. I had Rodney Davenport on here two or three weeks ago talking about, okay, what do you do when you have a faulty part? A faulty part on your injection molding line. What we do is we regrind it back up and we use that regrind to produce more products in the future. So it's, it's that type of mindset. And I wanted to touch on that because it, it is so important, Brandy. And um, what you're doing is exactly that. It, it, it's something that not a lot of people understand or even look for. But once you once you start to see these things, it can be huge, not only for your business, but for the environment as a whole. So the next thing I would I would ask you, Brandy, is through all of your experience in, in these various areas, sustainability, what are some of the biggest issues you see or kind of pushback you see um, in, in all these different areas that you've worked in? It's change. Change is so hard for the human to grasp and conceptualize and we're we're creatures of habit so we just want to do what we know and that's where sustainability and diverting waste or the hierarchy system of reuse or refuse and doing stuff out of the ordinary is really hard for the global population. We are we are in our own bubbles. Um, 
We have our priorities and our own priorities. And it's really challenging um, to, to let folks recognize what else is out there. Um, I would have to say, and I love them dearly, general contractors are very much trained to do a job and to put buildings together. And once those parts and pieces are fit together, I don't care about the rest of them. I don't care about how we take them apart. And I think there is a change of mindset that we have to recognize that we do have to care about how they're taken apart. Um, the word demolition has to come out of our vocabulary. Policy has to change where we recognize the value of decommissioned parts and pieces just as much as we value buying that supply chain on the front end, knowing on the back end, 10 years later, they have a value. They might not have the same value, um, but they have their own value and own rightful, you know, economic opportunity in and of itself. If we deconstruct it and give as much care as we did putting the pieces of a product or a building together, we have to take just as much care of taking things apart and putting them in the right pile, in the right group, because volume is everything. No one bottle is going to make a wall of fiberglass. An entire, you know, dumpster of glass bottles from the night before game is going to make a difference. The same thing with aluminum cans or plastic bottles. You can't just take one super sack or Gaylord or cardboard box and say, yup, I'm going to save the world. We've got to join together and bring that volume together. And that's why mailback programs are so important and showing logistically somebody in the trade or in the different industries of our built environment and our manufactured world, that there's a new place that we can divert trimmings from or all of our gypsum board trimmings there is there is a connectivity that we need to recognize that um, we're working on a project with um, cement kilns that are very much uh, being pressured to say, do you really have to glean all of that limestone and quarry it out of the earth? Or can you go to a construction and demolition site and deconstruct that limestone that's in that gypsum board and put it back into the product that you're going to manufacture. And the connectivity and bringing our different trades and industries together to recognize each other's value is, is the, the hardest challenge I have right now. Um, and, and the biggest shift we're going to have to see if we decarbonize ourselves or want to be a more sustainable world. And it's not just one industry that, Cement industry is one industry. They're not every <laughs> carbon global greenhouse gas out in the atmosphere. We're, there's a whole lot of other contributors as well. And so it's that recognition of who's doing what and who's willing to change and really take apart the business and recognize what they're doing in every business. 
you know, I, I don't care if you're a consultant, you know, what you do on a day-to-day basis, those choices make an impact. You know, the manufacturing lines make an impact of where they put their waste and and where they how they build their factories and how they push things together or take things apart is the largest challenge and the the largest reward if we can figure it out and and shift that titanic in that right direction for sure. So I want to unpack that a little bit more with the concept of of green buildings and more sustainable buildings and something that's called LEED or the the Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. Um, Different buildings, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, different buildings can get these LEED certifications or, or companies themselves can get LEED certifications if they abide by a certain set of guidelines. So c- could you unpack that a little bit and explain what LEED is and how organizations get the certification? Yeah, so um, LEED, L-E-E-D, is, uh, is a checklist and a platform that the United States Green Building Council established to um, really teach and account for uh, different things and different ways you can be, you choose to be more sustainable. Um, there's there's many certifications, don't get me wrong. So BREAM um, is part of the, the residential housing program um, and LEED is primarily for commercial buildings. Uh, there was a study done, um, Cascadia did it, um, gosh, in the early 2000s, late 90s, how buildings um, and the logistics and the formation of buildings is the largest contributor to greenhouse gases. They have the largest carbon footprint. So the United States Green Building Council was formed after this study was done to prove that we needed to change something drastically. And so this checklist in the lead helps building owners recognize how they want to be more sustainable and it holds them accountable. Um, Every program is like a report card, you know, how you can't, you can't know if you're really that green, if you're not accountable for it, or if you're not measuring it, if you're not measuring things and, you know, accounting and taking accountability for the volume that you're consuming or, you know, manufacturing, then you don't know. So this checklist, this lead checklist, um, and uh, the United Laboratories, the UL rating system has a similar one. Um, there's other uh, true advisor platforms as uh, the United States Green Building's waste certification specific uh, platform. And so um, there's a lot of different areas and report cards and checklists that we can utilize to say, you know what, how well are we doing to baseline where we're at and where we want to go? Where do we want, what, what does zero waste really mean? Well, we don't know what it really means if we don't even know what our what we're doing right now. How much are we throwing away? What are we throwing away? And until you do that dumpster dive, until you un- unpack the building and the parts and the pieces or how much waste you're actually throwing away and what that actually is made up of, 
you don't know where to go after that. So that's the the report card and the checklist is where you start. And then you grow from there. From there, you have a measurable account of how much stuff one is, you know, how much stuff is in a building, what it's made of, parts and pieces, how much water it's consuming, how much electricity it's consuming, how much waste is it producing based on, you know, how many people are in the building. And all of those very small checklisted items add up to a, a pathway of where some a company or a person can go. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I don't really think there's a personal checklist, but I feel like somebody should just make it to say, are we recycling? Are we refusing? Are we, how, how green is oneself? Um, maybe, maybe doctors need a checklist of how, how green a, a person is compared to the lead checklist, which is telling us how green or sustainable um, and how good a building is. The um, Candida Foundation is a very amazing uh, building that was um, designed a couple of years ago on the Georgia Tech campus. And it is a true example of, okay, we're, we're going for this checklist. We've got a checklist. We know how green we want to be, but what does that look like? And they have examples of aquaponics or solar shading or solar panels and voltaics and, and battery con, uh, collection and wind turbines. And that is really the basis of educating people all over the place to say, you know, where are true examples of people doing the right thing? Um, Cradle to Cradle is a great book to read. Um, the Rocky Mount Institute has an amazing plan to get off of our, of coal consumption in the nation. Um, and there's a, another checklist actually called Envision through the, um, there's a sustainable institute uh, in the DC area, I believe, that is really trying to set examples for people to know how to navigate to the greenest path that they can take. Um, and the checklist, the lead checklist is, is one of those, you know, tools that you can use to really create a better path for building and being a better person and, and a worker and, uh, a a contributor, a global contributor to, you know, our, our world better for worse. Right. It's funny that you bring up the Candida building at Georgia tech because, when I was a graduate assistant at the University of Pikeville um, in the MBA program, I, I was asked to do some research and, and put together a curriculum for sustainability, bringing a sustainability major to the university and possibly even a MBA uh, specialization in sustainability. So what I did was I, I researched a lot of different universities, put together curriculum, um, and then I also looked at, and that's where I came across this building, and said, okay, the curriculum's great, but why can't we we create a building where students can actually have hands-on experience with different forms mm-hmm. of sustainability? So that building is incredible. Um, and, and my vision was to take a smaller approach to what they do for the University of Pikeville and work with um, 
companies in Kentucky like App Harvest and Rubicon and, you know, create aquaponic systems in this building, create uh, vertical farming systems, create um, the data piece that Rubicon uses and even recycling and, and using, like you said, solar panel shading, wind turbines, all of these things so people can really understand, okay, I'm reading about this stuff, but let me put my hands on it and really feel what it is. And it made sense for for Rubicon and um, App Harvest because if this building was created, they could you know have their hands on the curriculum and even use um, this program at University of Pikeville as a recruiting uh, a, a recruiting system, so that their curriculum that they wanted in in the uh, material um, would be learned, and then once the kids graduated, they could be hired by these different schools and not schools, but different organizations. Um, and they'd be ready to work. So it made a lot of sense. The research I did, um, I, I presented to several people, but never, never, nothing ever happened with it. But recently, the University of Pikeville, um, I'm very happy about this. They announced a large investment into a new building called, um, it's an ag tech building, which is going to include some of these things that I presented, you know, different forms of sustainability um, where where students can learn and where students can grow things through aquaponics um, and just learn um, how to create a a greener future for yourself, for your family, for the community, and for a world as a whole. Um, So very, very interesting. Um, And that's another connection, I guess, we have through that building. I just come upon it through through research, but it's it's really cool what what they have done. So one of the last segments I want to get into, Brandy, is um, I, I read your article recently talking about should we demolish buildings? Should we deconstruct buildings? What's the benefits? What's the disadvantages of, of both? Um, and it was a very unique perspective on architecture and taking buildings down. So I'd love to hear you kind of unpack that as well. And for us to hear, you know, what are the benefits of deconstructing and what are the, 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 the bad parts about, you know, demolishing buildings? And it's not even a love-hate. It's the what fits best question of, you know, um, there we went on a way sort and um, to an army, army base and they were demolishing and deconstructing a air traffic tower. And it was no longer suitable for the time that we live in, there's a lot of different technology. They didn't necessarily need a higher building because that almost poses as a, a target for this base. Um, so they they wanted to um, take demolish part of the building, which was good on one part because if you um, if you detonate parts of the building, it, the buildings from the eighties were built pretty well, especially on um, bases, army bases. And so they actually got really great aggregate, but before they um, detonated parts of the building, they took the interior walls and systems out um, the elevated platform for the, um, all of the, the conduit and the electrical work underneath the flooring came out. And so that copper wiring was just fantastically diverted to a metal recycler and they 
got the value on that. So you strip down the wire and the copper in, in there. The commodities market, I don't know what the price is per pound today, but that's value. That's that's not just destroying a building and paying somebody to demolish something, but actually getting money for the parts and pieces that are inside. Um, there is a construction company up in Seattle, Washington that has two avenues. They demolish buildings and they de- deconstruct. So they actually resell dimensional lumber um, and they make money on what they're taking. The unbuilding part is very valuable. And um, with technology these days, LIDAR, um, Revit, uh, really some of these very modern Great software programs will give a better volume and holistic approach to giving that comparison. Do we demolish it for aggregate material that we can sell off or do we deconstruct parts and pieces of it so that we can resell it, reuse it, divert it as well? And um, there are fantastic softwares out there that are of age where we can really put some numbers to paper to say, okay, is it better to deconstruct or to demolish? And I think it will continue to be a a combination of both um, just based on region. And, um, you know, it's, it's not always cheaper to truck a, you know, material handler and excavator across country to a remote site. It might be worth, you know, taking the local labor and unbuilding a building that is actually cheaper, um, depending on the labor market, depending on the materials or the, the equipment at hand. And that's where that shift that just outside of the box thinking comes in to say, what kind of value do we have on this product, this building, this material? How, how much volume do we have and what can we get for it? And it's a math problem. And if we can put pen to paper and recognize the volume that's there, then you can make a very clear delineation of whether you demolish something based on the cost of goods or labor versus deconstructing something and the resale value on it. You know, electronics, lighting, um, uh, computers, and, and those furniture. Furniture banking is huge. And the, the foot, carbon footprint to make new furniture outweighs the idea of like not to reuse it. So reuse and furniture banking through steel case or all of these large furniture manufacturers is a no brainer. You get money for that, that material and that piece of furniture. So there's different industries that have different values on different pieces of and products. Um, and we'll continue to see the value grow in some areas and, you know, devaluations and it's the economy. And that's what we have to keep in mind. The three P's, you know, it's not just rinse and recycle and repeat. It's uh, and reduce and reuse. It's people and profit and planet. And is it good for the planet? Is it good for my pocketbook? Um, and is it good for the people that are in the community, whether it's putting them to work? which drives up the labor force and, and creates jobs um, through deconstruction? Or, you know, is that piece of machinery there? And, you know, can we make an aggregate? And is the machinery available to make 
uh, good material after after that. So it's um, definitely a, a numbers game and just realizing what you have on, on the plate at that particular location. I, I really want people to understand just how important what you're saying is because the C and the C and D industry um, is the largest contributor to landfills in America. You know, I, I read it was almost two times that of waste that cities um, municipal the solid waste. Yes, that that, <laughs> yeah. that that they that they end up wasting. So this is a very important conversation, but it all it all goes back to um, again we can tie it back to cradle to cradle because understanding, okay, there is value in this. Let's capture it and let's find a new use for it and not just demolish it um, and, and send it to the landfill. So very, very, very important stuff. The, the last couple things I want to ask you, Brandy, then we'll, we'll, we'll get off here is um, I asked everyone this that comes on the podcast because everyone has a different perspective and everyone kind of sees sustainability in a different light. So to you, why is sustainability important? I've got kids and if I don't have, if they don't have the same things that are available to me today, then I've, I've failed them and I've done a disservice to the future generations. I'm, I do not self-serve. I am a servant of, of a higher being and uh, my children and my husband. And I want them to know that, you know, I did everything I could in my power to to make a world for them a great place to live in, you know, when I'm gone. So I, I think that is the true idea of how sustainable are you, are we, are us for ourselves and and the people we don't see in the future generations. And if we have any type of just humility to serve the the earth and you know our planet more than ourselves i think that's my true definition of sustainability yeah yeah it's larger larger than yourself and that a lot of people have they might not say that specifically but pretty much everyone ties that back in in some form so lastly i'll ask this will be the last question is what advice would you give to people pursuing a career in design or architecture? What would you say to them as they embark on their journey um, in these different fields? Um, you know, don't don't think that um, you have to go to school for one thing and that be all and all. You know, it, it, um, it life changes daily, and so. Um, I am thankful that <laughs> actually it's interesting. I was going to go to school for fashion and my mother told me, um, go to school for something you can make money at. And I thank her for letting me be, think broad enough and big enough. Don't just think, Oh, I got, you know, these, these kind of grades and I can only do this, this type of work. The world is your oyster and you, um, as my grandparents, my Polish grandparents said, Azumakit, it's as you make it. So if you keep an open mind, there's, you know, different degrees that you can achieve and get, go ahead and get that one. But don't think that you can, you don't, you don't have to stay down that certain degree path. 
you can venture off and it may serve you well to venture off the path into a different path. And that's not to say that you're lost. It's just that you've taken a different road. And so, um, you know, a degree is, is good no matter what it's in. And I always keep learning and always know that there's more out there and there's different roads that you can travel down. Well, Brandy, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on to the Green Hour and sharing your story and sharing your work. Um, it truly is, truly is awesome to hear from someone like you that's that's done so much good in the world. Um, so again, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Preston.